Good morning. Uh, in the spring, if you were part of a grow group on Wednesday nights, then you know that what we covered uh, was the book of Exod- Exodus, yes. And the students in uh, our church don't always follow the same curriculum as the adults on Wednesdays, but that semester we did. And we were able to cover a lot of interesting topics. However, if you read Exodus long enough, you'll also get to quite a few chapters with some laws that aren't overly exciting. Uh, one of the laws that did catch our attention was Exodus 23:19. Maybe some of you know it. Do not cook a goat in its mother's milk. Uh, it actually comes up three different times in the Torah. Uh, what's less known to most of us is that centuries after this law was recorded, the Jews couldn't remember what it meant. This isn't overly surprising since the Old Testament records that Israel frequently lost God's word for long periods of time. And during at least one of those time periods, there was a gap in communication between the generations regarding what this law meant. Uh, But the command is clearly important since it's repeated three times. Uh, So this forced Jewish scholars to ponder what sort of implications might be drawn out from it. How were they supposed to follow this instruction? Now, to you and I, that might seem rather simple. Let's not boil any goats in their mother's milk, and we can call it a day. (laughs) But these Jews were a little more committed to piety than we are, and they knew there must be more to it than just a literal interpretation. In order to cover all their bases, it crossed their minds that perhaps God did not want them to mix milk, or milk, uh, the mother's milk, uh, and meat, the goat itself. And one thing led to another, Uh, and even today, practicing Jews do not mix meat and dairy products. You can find restaurants in Israel that are divided in two so that meat and dairy products can be served separately. They don't even prepare both in the same area for fear that they might touch. Additionally, they maintain that you need to wait a certain amount of time after consuming dairy products or meat until you can eat the other. Wait times vary somewhere from one hour to six hours. Now to us, those extrapolated principles appear far-fetched, and that was recognized even by Jewish scholars long ago. As far back as the 12th century, the Jewish philosopher Maimonides offered an alternative interpretation and said, as for the prohibition against eating meat and milk, it's of my opinion not improbable that idolatry had something to do with it. Perhaps such food was eaten at one of the ceremonies of their cult, or at least at one of their festivals. According to me, this is the most probable view regarding the reason for this prohibition. And time appears to have borne out that thesis. We'll never know with certainty what it meant, but roughly 100 years ago, archaeology uncovered good evidence that the law had nothing to do with the separation of dairy and meat products. Scholars believe that the writings in the discovered Ugaritic texts state that the people in the area of Canaan had the habit of cooking a goat in its mother's milk as a fertility or harvest ritual to their gods. The context of harvest fits perfectly in with Exodus, since the words immediately following, or actually preceding Exodus 23:19, are in fact about the harvest. In all likelihood, God was simply telling his people not to engage in pagan fertility rites. 
Now, I share this example with you because it illustrates what often happens when we try to play, apply God's instructions to our lives without understanding their purpose. In this case, the Jews looked at this command, saw the words milk and goat, and concluded that cheeseburgers were forbidden. <laughs> because they failed to understand the heart of God, they placed an unnecessary burden on his people. In our passage today, Mark 7, Jesus confronts a similar situation. In his case, the religious teachers of the time had opposed upon the people certain purity rites that were based on God's word, but had never been mandated by God. When questioned about why Jesus did not engage in, the, engage in these traditional practices, his response was harsh. In fact, at first glance, it can, be, it can appear to be somewhat disproportionate to the question at hand. A few verses later, when his disciples asked for further explanation, he asked if they're really that dull, that they didn't understand what he said. And we might begin to wonder if Jesus was just having a bad day. But we know that Jesus didn't have bad days like you or I. He did not overreact out of anger or because he was tired or even hangry. If Jesus responded like this, it was because he wanted to emphasize how important the topic at hand was. Now, I'll admit that a casual reading of the passage today may not convince us of its importance to us. My initial tendency in reading it was to think that Jesus was condemning man-made religious traditions and legalism, maybe a bit of religious snobbery. If you're like me, that doesn't feel particularly relevant to me. There are small ways we can avoid being too traditional, um, maybe be open to newer music within worship, uh, not get annoyed that we have Bible study after service instead of before. But as a rule, religious traditions seem more problematic for other people. Maybe the Catholic Church. I mean, sure, some Baptists have issues with legalism, but I don't. So this passage can feel more like an FYI than practical material for me. Friends, if you think the passage is only about rules and traditions, then that conclusion may make sense. But it isn't. Rules and traditions would more accurately be classified as the goat cooked in milk of this passage. And what I mean by that is that Jesus points to human rules to help clarify his point, but they are not the point. In this passage, Jesus was not upset that the Jews washed their hands too frequently. Jesus was upset because the Pharisees had completely missed what God had been trying to teach them for centuries. They had taken what God had intended for good, the revelation of himself through his word and his law, and used it to create an idol for themselves. We're all capable of doing exactly the same thing and need Jesus' teaching today as much as they did then. Will you please stand with me as we read today's passage, Mark 7, verses 1 through 23. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with their hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? 
And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the command of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit me to do anything, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handled down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, uh, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. Please be seated. So this passage may sound familiar. Uh, Indeed, Jesus' conflict with the Pharisees and religious leaders resurfaces quite frequently. And it is with this group that Jesus issues his strongest criticism time and time again. If Jesus' life were a Bond movie or a superhero comic, the Pharisees appear to be the ultimate villains. I tend to picture them a bit like the character Jafar from the the story Aladdin. They have poofy hats and stand there in an intimidating manner, with evil faces clearly plotting world domination. They hold power and influence but nobody really likes them. That makes for a more exciting story, but it's not a fair portrayal. The order of the Pharisees arose in the second century BC, largely as a counter movement to the politicization of the Jewish priesthood by the Maccabees. In this regard, they're similar to the Protestant reformers who arose largely as a response to the Catholic church becoming more of a political entity rather than spiritual leaders of the community. The word Pharisee literally means set apart. This jumped out to me because that is exactly what God's people should desire to be. They were the grassroots religious leaders in their communities. They were not the powerful and the elite. The famed Jewish historian Josephus wrote that the ruling class, the Sadducees, which included the high priests, had very little decorum and were always fighting among themselves. But the Pharisees had the reputation of being very respectful and always concerned for the public good. Furthermore, Josephus wrote that of all the religious orders, the Pharisees were the experts in deciphering the law, and the common people loved them. 
In fact, he said that they had so great a power over the multitude that when they say anything against the king or against the high priest, they are presently believed. That's right. The Pharisees were so trustworthy that they could call out the high priest, the highest religious leader in Israel, and the average person assumed that they were right. The Pharisees were the respected, pious members of their town. In many ways, they were probably more like the average pastor today. They were the good guys. If you think of the respect you have for Pastor Stephen and Pastor Danny, the Israelites of that time felt similarly about the Pharisees. Besides being average, pious men, the Pharisees were extremely concerned with maintaining Israel's devotion to God. You would expect that from religious leaders, but remember that the Old Testament tells us that Israel had hundreds and hundreds of years of falling away from God and worshiping idols. God eventually let Babylon conquer Israel and deport their their people as a consequence, but only after this did Israel really take seriously the fact that they were God's people. The Pharisees were the guardians of the covenant with God. If their actions seem overzealous, it was because they wanted to avoid the long history that Israel had. Their ultimate hope was if they remained a wholly set-apart people, they would usher in the rival of the Messiah. When we read the Bible, it's important to understand the message as it would have been received by the original audience. When first century Jews heard of Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees, the stories would have shocked them. They didn't see the Pharisees as hypocritical jerks like we do. They saw them as the best Jewish society had to offer. For Jesus to tell the Pharisees they were doing it all wrong probably caused anxiety for many. Think of what happened when Jesus said it was nearly impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples' immediate reaction was to wonder how then anybody could enter the kingdom of God. This confrontation would have created the same reaction. If the Pharisees don't understand the law, then who can? Moving on to the context of this particular story, Mark tells us that several of the Pharisees and religious leaders had traveled down from Jerusalem. This was not a short journey. It was around 90 miles away, and given that most travel in that day happened by walking, it would have taken several days. Word of everything that Jesus was doing had reached them, and they had decided it was worth their time and effort to come examine his teaching. Now, based on the previous passages, we can assume that they didn't come with very open hearts. They came primarily to critique his ministry. But we're not that different. Many of us tend to be skeptical of any large religious movement, even Christian movements, Just this year, during the outpouring of worship that we saw in Ashbury that was termed a revival, I heard many Christians say that things were not that, or say things that weren't overly positive. Instead of praising the work that the Spirit was doing there, the common response that I heard was, we'll believe it when we see the results in a few years. Now, I'm not saying we should not await the events around us. That's a good and biblical thing to do. What I am saying is that the Pharisees were doing the exact same thing that we would do. They heard of Jesus' ministry, and they said, we'll support it only if we know for sure it's from God. At this particular event, they bring one complaint to Jesus. His disciples do not do the ceremonial hand-washing. 
Since Mark is written to a more Gentile audience, he's kind enough to add something like a footnote to explain that all Jews practice this ceremony, and it involved more than just washing your hands before meals. The purpose was not hygiene. It was a ceremonial washing that showed their status as God's people. The instructions were to take at least one and a half eggshells worth of water and pour it over your hands, starting at your fingers, so that it would run down towards your wrist. They would then cleanse one palm with the other palm, pour water again, but this time starting at the wrist, going down to the fingers, and so on. There were other instructions for purifying different items or for returning from the marketplace. The rite could not be done with ordinary water. Special stone vessels were used to store the water required. In fact, we find mention of this in John 2 when, John, when Jesus uh, completes his first miracle at the wedding in Cana. Apparently, at this wedding that Jesus was attending, there were six stone water jars that had been set aside for the Jewish rites of purification. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. So they had enough storage for around 150 gallons of purification water there. Clearly, a lot of purification rites were going on at that location. And the tradition was taken very seriously throughout the nation. A Jewish rabbi who was imprisoned by the Romans used the small amount of water given to him for ceremonial washing. He therefore had no water to drink and almost died of thirst. By the doing this, he became a national hero. Now you may be wondering where this practice originated. As noted in the text, it was not something that had been passed down in the Torah. Hence, it's simply referred to as the tradition of the elders. But that's not to say it was not based on God's word. In Exodus 30, God commanded the priests to wash their hands and feet before entering the tabernacle uh, or offering sacrifices. And the gravity of the command was emphasized several times with the repetition of a very small phrase. Multiple times the text says that if they are to do it so that they will not die. The Jews concluded that the washing of hands by the priests was a big deal. To go along with that, many times in the Old Testament, God uh, tells Israel that they are to be a nation of priests. So if everyone is a priest, it makes sense that they should follow the priestly rites of purification to show their dedication. The washing of hands by the priest is not the only support in God's word for clean hands. Another example can be found in Psalms 24, verses 3 and 4, when David asked, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, and who may stand in his holy place? The answer to his question, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. To reiterate, the ability to stand in God's holy place is dependent on a pure heart and clean hands. To the Jews, it sounds as if our literal hands are as important as our hearts. I think if we're to be fair, we must acknowledge that they were using the exact same methods that we also use imperfectly. We come to God's word and we ask, how does this apply to my life? Washing hands was one of the life applications that they had come up with. And because the Pharisees were real people, the fact that Jesus did not follow the accepted traditions or value clean hands was an emotional issue. Their critique of Jesus wasn't made simply because they didn't like Jesus. Jesus' stance on this issue genuinely offended them. 
There is a, re a record of a rabbi who was excommunicated for not performing the hand-washing ritual. It was commonly understood and repeated that eating bread without washing hands was no better than eating excrement. One rabbi also stated that eating without washing your hands is just as grave a sin as sleeping with a prostitute. This criticism of Jesus was not nitpicking. They believed that Jesus was essentially an open rebellion against God. And I should clarify that the criticism was against Jesus himself. The passage mentions that the Pharisees were complaining about his disciples not washing their hands, but anything Jesus allowed his disciples to do was a reflection of his leadership. It also implied that Jesus did not perform the hand washing himself since his disciples would have tried to imitate him in everything. In fact, in Luke 11, there's another incident where a Pharisee is surprised to see that Jesus himself does not wash his hands. Getting back to how offensive this was, Kevin DeYoung suggested that a, an illustration that might resonate with us more, although perhaps still not strong enough, would be to consider how we would feel if Pastor Stephen got up here and said that as a Christian, you're free to cuss and use as much foul language as you like, as long as you don't mean anything bad by it. So according to him in this hypothetical situation, the words you use don't determine the condition of your heart. Some of you who struggle with your language might be okay in this imaginary tale, but most of us would be shocked and probably a little angry. Language is not what would be considered a core gospel issue. It does not deny the fundamentals such as the, the Trinity, the divinity of Jesus, or his death and resurrection, but even so, some of us might actually leave the church and never come back. We understand that what is in our hearts is arguably more important than the words we use, but we also know that our words reflect our hearts, and so the two cannot be easily separated. For the Pharisees, ceremonial washing reflected the heart, and not doing it was extremely offensive. Jesus was pulling in crowds and telling them that they didn't have to worry about what it meant to be God's people. What the Pharisees were saying was that Jesus' way was not the right way to follow God. Interestingly enough, Jesus doesn't really answer the question directly. He doesn't debate the merits of ceremonial hand-washing or explain that his disciples would normally wash their hands, but the practical implications of their current work had made it impossible. What he says is that the Pharisees value human traditions over God's law. And this is where most of us tend to drift off. We don't have creeds we recite every day. We don't have set times that we're required to play, uh, pray. Rare, really, we barely have any religious rules or traditions at all. So this teaching doesn't feel like it's for us. But a complete study of all Jesus' teaching reveals that Jesus' primary point can't be that he came to remove human traditions. Jesus was not against traditions. In Matthew 23, while critiquing the Pharisees at a different time, he said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything that they tell you. He then added this, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. So let that sink in. Jesus' target in that passage was not the traditions or teachings 
of the time. He was critiquing how the Pharisees lived out what they taught. Similarly, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus was not contrasting human rules with God's commands. The Pharisees had come to him and asked why he did things differently. His reply was intended to show that the reason he taught something different was because the Jewish worldview at the time was wrong. The Pharisees had misunderstood God's revelation up until that point. If Jesus was to teach the truth, by default, he would have to oppose what they had accepted. Before I explain where the Pharisees went wrong, let's quickly summarize what a biblical worldview is. So God's world teaches that God initially created a good world. Man's rebellion corrupted that creation, and the only solution is for God to send a Savior to restore everything to his design. Even though they had less details than we have, the Pharisees understood that basic outline. They were, in fact, waiting for God to send his promised anointed one to restore justice to the world. But here's where they went wrong. They misconstrued the problem the Messiah was coming to solve. And not because it hadn't been clearly shown. The account of original sin teaches that creation was good until human beings decided to go their own way. The human heart was the problem. Israel's history itself reinforces that narrative by showing that they always turn their hearts away from God despite the fact that he blessed them over and over again and gave them much more than they needed or even deserved. The Old Testament itself almost reads like a series of human experiments in which God provides every scenario imaginable to prove that the problem is always us. God put Adam and Eve in a perfect garden, and they failed. Humanity was then given the opportunity to figure it out on their own, but things got so bad, God had to destroy everything with a flood. God picks one special family to show favor to as long as they trust in him, they can't keep it together. He gives instructions to an entire nation. They never come close to following him. He lives among them, and all they do is complain. He gives them a priesthood, but the priests are failures. He disciplines them and rescues them with judges, but they never change. He gives them a king when they demand it. It gets no better. In riches or poverty, with instruction or relative freedom, in success or defeat, the problem is always the same, the human heart. Many of the laws God gave Israel to include the hand-washing of the priests was meant to further illustrate that truth. By demanding that the priests wash, God was saying, I am holy, and even your most holy representatives are not. You must be purified to enter my presence. You are the problem. It seems obvious, but the Pharisees had managed to see the hand-washing differently. You could say they favored a more literal interpretation. Their thought process went something along these lines. When I wash my hands, there's pretty much nothing about myself that I've changed. Just like if I change my clothes, I'm still the same person. The only thing that's changed is that I removed any dirt or contaminants from my hands. The problem isn't me, it's the impurities on me from the world. You might wonder if that under misunderstanding is really that significant, after all, we are just talking about a little ritual that doesn't do much to impact their lives. At worst, we can say that they misunderstood the problem with the world, but they still knew what the solution was, the Savior God would send. Did it really matter? So I guess the question becomes, 
Did they or do I need to understand what I'm being saved from to be saved by God? It's a fair question. If you take the illustration of a a physical ailment, do I need to understand all the details of what's wrong with me to allow the doctor to address what's harming me? And the truth is that I don't, right? As long as the doctor knows what's going on and prescribes the right treatment, the issue can be addressed. I don't have to understand it. But there is one little wrinkle. I may not have to completely understand the problem to be healed, but I do have to accept that the doctor has correctly diagnosed my issue. Imagine a scenario where before you go to a doctor, you spend lots of time researching your symptoms online. And you come up with a treatment plan. You know what the problem is, you know how to treat it. Uh, You just need to get a certain medication and you'll be fine. Unfortunately, you still need to go to the doctor because for some reason they're the only ones that can give you the meds you need. So you go in and the doctor tells you those are not the, the things that you need. That is not the medication you need. What you actually need is a heart transplant. <laughs> now, you don't have to understand the diagnosis, but you do have to accept it for the treatment to take place. It becomes a problem if the whole time you're in the office, you aren't really listening to the doctor because you already know what you need. While the doctor's talking, you just smile and nod while thinking about your plans for dinner that night. And when he finally finishes his explanation, all you are wondering is, is if he has the correct information for your pharmacy so that you can get the prescription sent quickly. In that scenario, your lack of understanding of the problem is a serious issue. The fact that the Pharisees didn't agree with God's diagnosis diagnosis was a big problem because it meant that they would never recognize the solution God provided since it didn't look like what they thought they needed. The Messiah was there staring them in the face, but it didn't click in their minds. They didn't recognize him because he wasn't addressing the problem that they thought they had. They were waiting for someone who could save them from the physical world. And they were passing on this erroneous diagnosis to his people. Sin and death and corruption were caused by the Romans, the Gentiles, the Samaritans, maybe the Zealots or the Sadducees. But if you continue to remain pure and dedicated to God, then one day he'll send his anointed one to rid us of all those people. Hand washing was so important to them because it set clear boundary lines between the good people and the disease. Think of how tragic this would have been to Jesus day after day. Jesus knew that the human heart had destroyed God's relationship with his creation so profoundly that the only solution was for Jesus himself to give up his place in heaven and come to earth to die in our stead. And then only if we accept him as our representative and Lord can we give, he begin to give us a new heart. But the Pharisees were telling the people that their hearts were pure, The problem was the world they lived in. They were telling people they didn't need the treatment that Jesus was providing at so great a cost. So how did they make this crucial mistake? They were the experts on God's word, and I've already pointed out that his word is exceptionally clear on where the problem lies. Sadly, the Pharisees were just following the same path that humans have always naturally followed. The first sinners, Adam and Eve, placed the blame for sin outside themselves. Human religions in general have continued to pin the problem of evil on outside influences. For the ancients, bad things were thought to be the fault of the capricious gods out there. 
Several Greek philosophers thought that the problem was that we live in a physical world, but one day we'll get to an ideal spiritual state. Many religions teach of a final judgment where God will take care of the bad people and the followers of that religion will be rewarded for their purity. And this way of viewing things isn't limited to religion. Enlightenment philosophers such as Jean-Jacques Rousseau famously laid out the belief that man in his natural state is good. It is societal pressures that force him to do bad things. The answer to the question, would a human being alone in the woods ever do anything bad, is clearly no. Of course, if we really start to debate that philosophy, it may sound a bit odd, but it's actually consistent with how our society operates. In most situations, people's bad choices are blamed on their upbringing, on their schools, on their circumstances, on their ra- how their race or gender is treated, on their friends, on the systems they encounter, will blame everyone and everything except their hearts. And Christians are not very different, but I'll get to that in a moment. Before I do, I want to cover one final thing that Jesus says. In verses 18 and 19, Mark tells us that at that moment, Jesus declared all things clean, all foods clean. It's easy to gloss over this detail because it almost doesn't seem to fit the context. Here, Jesus is condemning the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, pointing out why their worldview opposes God, and explaining why their traditions are a problem, and then he randomly cancels Jewish dietary laws that were put in place by God himself. How does that make sense? Is it because Mark was looking back decades later and just all of a sudden had an epiphany that these statements were probably why Christians can now eat pork? The answer is partially yes and partially no. It's not unlikely that in the moment the disciples' brains were not completely following what Jesus was teaching them. Their grasp of the gospel did expand over time, and Jesus' teaching would become clearer as they grew. But just because the disciples were a little lost does not mean that Jesus' statements were random or unintentional. And they actually do complement the rest of the text quite well if we understand the theme correctly. So if you think the theme is man-made religion versus God's rules, then the comment about food doesn't make sense. It seems to be putting some of God's past rules on par with human traditions. But as has already been stated, that isn't the theme. Jesus has spent the whole passage explaining to the Pharisees that they have, in fact, missed what God has been trying to show them. God gave them the law not to keep them pure from the outside world, but to show them that they needed a Savior from their own hearts. Everything God has given them has been a sign pointing to this one central truth. The dietary laws were no different. In Colossians 2, Paul wrote concerning food and festivals that these are a shadow of the things to come, but the body that casts it belonged to Christ. In other words, the dietary laws were not the thing itself, but they were supposed to draw the gaze of the person practicing it. They were given as signs to point the Jews to their Savior. Now, you might ask, If that's true, then why does Jesus seem to be canceling them? That, my friends, is the exciting part. Jesus was telling everyone that they no longer needed the signs pointing towards him because he was already there. I like how the theologian N.T. Wright says it. When you arrive at the destination, you don't need the signposts anymore. 
not because they were worthless, but precisely because they were correct. You no longer need them because they got you where you were trying to go. Jesus is telling everyone that the dietary restrictions are unnecessary now, not because they were wrong, but because they were right. In this passage, Jesus is declaring not only that the Pharisees haven't understood what is wrong with the world, but that the Messiah they have been waiting for has come. He is what all the signposts have been pointing to. So how does this all tie in with Christians? We all already understand Jesus is God's solution to healing a broken world. And we would hopefully agree that the brokenness Jesus came to fix is our hearts. I promise that this text is for us, but it still doesn't quite feel like it is. Here, brothers and sisters, is how we can apply it. We need to examine our hearts and ask if we truly believe the problem with the world is our hearts. While I expanded for a long time on the mistakes the Pharisees made, the truth is that they probably didn't sound any different than us. Verbally, they probably would have agreed that the human heart is broken. The problem was that their actions showed that they did not believe what they said. That is why Jesus quotes the writings of the prophet Isaiah. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Are we following the same pattern? Let me illustrate why I think we might be. Think about some of the most popular topics Christians like to talk about. And by that, I don't mean the topics that we hear about most in church or that sound spiritual. I mean the topics that get people excited, the things we like to talk about. I made a short list. This is what came to mind. Abortion, homosexuality, Biden, Trump, pronouns, racism, the culture, women pastors, the education system, masks, vaccines, judges letting criminals off, immigration, maybe guns, drugs, alcohol, cancel culture, social media. I could go on for a pretty long time. But do you know what all these things have in common? They are all opportunities to pin evil in the world on other people. You know what I don't hear Christians passionately talk about? How messed up our hearts are. Of course, we'll admit to little transgressions. I get too angry in Albuquerque traffic. Or I spend too much time on my phone. Or maybe I should pray more. But those are topics that we don't think are that important. And often we aren't really counting on Jesus to change that much. When is the last time you heard somebody say something like this? I'm desperately praying that God will reshape how my heart views his church. I come because I know I should, but usually I don't want to be here. It definitely is not my priority. If I have a schedule conflict, then there are several other things that would take priority. And don't even bring up walking with my Christian brothers and sisters outside of scheduled service times. I just don't have time for that. And I'm not sure how I would because it would require that I give up some of my other priorities. I need Jesus to work on me because otherwise I will never love the church like he does. Friends, we don't talk like that. We don't talk like that because we don't want Jesus to make that many changes in our heart. When we pray your kingdom come, we aren't talking about in our lives. Like the Pharisees, we think we're pretty good. The work God needs to do is out there. 
It makes me ask whether the words of Isaiah are true for us. We honor and worship God with our lips, but our hearts are far from him. Is God thinking something like this? They attend church, but their hearts aren't in it. They don't desperately long to be in deeper fellowship with their brothers and sisters. Or they read their Bible, but they aren't looking to be radically changed. They rarely even feel inspired enough to discuss my words of life with their friends and family. Or maybe they pray with grandiose terms, but they don't ache for their community to be changed. They donate money to fulfill their obligation to God's kingdom and think it somehow absolved them from leaving their comfortable lives for my sake. They say I'm their Lord, but they put all their time and energy into finding wealth and success into building their kingdoms. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Brothers and sisters, if we read the Bible and think the problem Jesus was addressing was people like the Pharisees, then we prove that we are no different than they. We say Jesus is the solution, but the solution to what? How we answer that question matters. I may answer it correctly with my words, but do my actions show that I believe what I'm saying? To say that I believe Jesus came to save me doesn't just mean that I believe he paid the price for my sins on the cross. It means that I want the radical changes he came to bring. The examples of the Pharisees is chilling. It shows that you can know humanity is impure. You can know you need a savior. You can do all the religious things. You can revere and adore and worship the one true God of the universe. As Jesus says in Matthew 7, you can even claim him as Lord. You can seemingly do all those things and yet reject him because you aren't interested in letting him transform your heart. May this not be us, friends. May our devotion be true. May every day Jesus put in us the desire to be changed in ways we never thought possible. Let me close in prayer.